This episode is sponsored by a patron of the Met Orchestra Musicians. Since the shuttering of the Metropolitan Opera in New York for public health concerns, Met Orchestra Musicians has remained committed to connecting its global audience through music. They firmly believe that music and art offer solace, inspiration, and an affirmation of our humanity. Visit metorchestramusicians.org to offer support. On this episode, we have Joseph DeMuro. Joe was born in New York and dedicated his life to entertainment, building his career with decade-long stints at Fox and BMG Music, a division of Sony. He has worked with such artists as Shaka Khan, Gloria Stefan, Aaron Neville, and the Dave Matthews Band. He has been involved on the agency side after that, working with leading musicians like Justin Timberlake. He also launched an agency in partnership with Jay-Z and his production company, Rock Nation. Joe, thank you so much for being on our show. Of course, it's my pleasure, Racine. Now, I'm going to surmise you uh, grew up in an Italian household, not just because of the last name, but because you attended the Catholic high school, Mount St. Michael Academy. That is correct, and it's very accurate. I, um, my beginnings were part of an Italian-American family um, out of the Bronx, New York. And it was a very sort of interesting time. Uh, you know, I grew up sort of in the was born in the 60s, mid 60s, late 60s, and really spent my childhood in the city trying to understand what it meant to be a city child. Um, you know, going through the process, having it. Well, you know, it was pre-internet, pre-digital, pre-one TV, three channels, black and white, rabbit ears, put the tinfoil on the top and try to get reception. Yeah, so a lot of what I did as, as a child growing up, having an older brother and older sister, was really engaged in what we'll call you know physical activities. There was the, the using your imagination and creating, for me, it was a concrete jungle. I never had grass, I didn't have parks. There wasn't open expanses. Um, it was a, a childhood that was based on playing these city games and having a fire hydrant as my pool and my recreation. Um, but it was glorious, you know, I, um, I wouldn't change my childhood for anything. I think it really helped build the metal of who I became. And I really understood what it was like to be, you know, an Italian American immigrant coming over my mom and dad, both, you know, high school, uh, the level of their education was as high as high school. My dad was a sanitation worker for the New York city department of sanitation. My mother was a telephone operator for New York bell. Uh, they both worked different shifts. My brother and sister took me to school. Um, we kind of learned to cook and clean for ourselves and living in a one-bedroom apartment. But uh, wow. it was a, a glorious time. Innocent, yeah. very innocent, I must say. That's extraordinary. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. Uh, the spark of interest for entertainment, uh, which was where you've spent uh, the, you know, your, your career, very successful career. Did that start in childhood or was that at Concordia and University? No, I'd say it probably started in high school. Um, so yes, um, childhood as a, today they weren't called that, but a Gen Z who, um, you know, I, I came through the streets and really understanding at that point, sort of music was my first love. And I really galvanized around sort of the early stages of let's say 80s, 70s, late 70s music of the sort of generation of hip hop music. Um, and being a child of an urban environment and urban locale, I was exposed to a lot of that. You know, the early stages of the Jay-Z and the Run DMC. And so I think I gravitated towards that. Um, and as I was 
going through my senior years at high school as a, a junior and a senior, I started to really think about what I wanted to do, where I was going to go educationally. Um, it was a little bit early for a vocation, but I was gravitating towards music and writing. And I, I always loved English as almost like a science where I was, you know, reading a lot and kind of engaging myself in the craft of like, what does it mean to be a fictional writer? Um, and that kind of led to where I was going into the courses at Concordia. But, but there was always a, a slant and certainly a strand related around music, which kind of led me down the entertainment path. Was there a messaging in the music that really resonated with you at that age? Yeah, it's a good question, it seemed. Um, yes, there was. And, and, uh, and not that I was appreciative enough to really understand the substance of it. Um, but following a, a, an artist, um, you know, like a Jay-Z or a Diddy, and, and you know, those artists were, they were sort of my progenitors. They came up, they were around the same age. Jay is in his early 50s, which just turned 50. Diddy went to Mount St. Michael High School, the same high school that I went to. Um, there, there was a message. The message was like, you can, um, you know, prosperity is not necessarily looking at it in the context of having this, this incredible childhood having wealth, having an entitlement. Um, it's a question of what you do with the surroundings, what you do with the wealth of your family and your friendships, um, how you behave in certain circles. And I think Jay spent a lot of time in his lyrics talking about what it was like growing up at Marcy Gardens. You know, he was going down a path that was quite dark. You know, it was, um, I shouldn't say riddled, but there was a, it was destitute, there was corruption, there was drugs, there was violence. Um, where I grew up in the Bronx wasn't as severe, but it was racially integrated. I mean, I had friends who became drug addicts and I had friends who kind of went down the criminal path. And, you know, music sometimes in those lyrics kind of help straighten out your perspective. So uh, it's a long way of saying that I think it certainly had an impact, um, maybe not as profound because I was so young at that time, but certainly having an impact in terms of my direction mentally. Thank you, Joe. Really do appreciate that thoughtful share. That was great. So right out of college, you land this job at Fox and you, you're there for a little over a decade. Share with us about that, how that came about and your experience there. Yeah, it was um, serendipitous. Uh, as I graduated Concordia, I had an English degree. I was interning at Reader's Digest uh, in Pleasantville, New York. Um, so I interned there two consecutive summers. And then when I graduated, they offered me a job. And I worked um, for no more than maybe two months at Reader's Digest in their condensed book division. I was working out of Manhattan and I was miserable. Um, it had nothing to do with writing. There was nothing creative about it. It was, um, and again, I, you know, the entitlement of a 21-year-old graduating college, university, and you're like, oh, here's what I want to do. I want to rock the world. Um, but it was a serendipitous opportunity for me at Fox. I answered um, essentially a blind ad the New York Times, no recruitment, wow. nothing of that caliber. I went in for an interview and I became a marketing assistant for the director of marketing for a venture called CBS Fox, which was a joint venture between CBS Television and 20th Century Fox Film. And that basically launched my career in film. Um, it was a interesting time because again it was pre-digital a scene there, there was only three channels um network channels there was very little cable entree the hbo was still very nascent and, and beginning its stages um it was a very innocent time for entertainment programming but it was also um a dramatic time because when i entered 
when I got to News Corp in 1987, they were just launching the Fox network as the fourth major network. So there was this huge sort of like, oh my gosh, what are they doing? They're disrupting the paradigm. And then it was the advent of VHS and the you know video uh, cassette recorders, which became an incredibly profitable business for film studios. So I was managing sales and marketing, uh, you know, what, what became an incredible cash cow for the film studio. So the home video business was burgeoning. I mean, it was a meteoric ascension and the profits were not only, you know, the, the revenue was terrific, the EBITDA was terrific, the margins were good. It was an early stage meteoric business that continued to ascend year after year. And then what happened was we started to acquire more catalogs and more joint ventures and we did a license with the NBA. So we did all of the NBA home entertainment products, the NBA finals with Michael Jordan and Space Jam and all that, that work. So Fantastic. You the advent of VHS and the, the war between Sony and Toshiba, mm. when you think about VHS and Betamax and who mm. went out in that war. And then I saw the advent of DVD when it came to home entertainment. Um, there was this sort of uh, proliferation of what was happening in the exhibition, the actual exhibition businesses where they were concerned of the threat of VHS and, and uh, video cassette recorders, which actually had the opposite effect. It increased theatrical exhibition. They moved me to LA in 1991, okay. my first time in Los Angeles. Um, and then I spent uh, you know, time on both the 20th Century Fox lot, uh, what we call the Die Hard building, which was the Nakatomi Plaza at sure. Fox Plaza in Century yeah. City. And, and I cut my teeth a little bit further into sort of interactive. So during around 19, probably around the mid nineties, we got involved in building a, a Fox interactive division, porting over content and programming from some of the Fox TV and film properties. And one of the That's things right. I really appreciate about your uh, experiences, Joe, and your background is you've been at these very large corporations, but you had a very entrepreneurial role in what you were doing constantly at the cutting edge or trying to see where the market trends were going and you were kind of at the, the center of it. So it's, these are great experiences to share. Um, what prompted the move to BMG? Yeah, and that's a, that was another, um, I mean, when you think about those inflection points in your career. So I'm 10 years now in at News Corp and 20th Century Fox. Um, I, I guess you can say this as we get older, we start to look back at the chapters of our career. So I, I, I try to compartmentalize it. Um, I got a call from a recruiter for uh, a job at RCA Records and they were looking for a head of sales and marketing. And I was sort of like, okay, interesting. Um, I love the music industry. I don't necessarily have the contextual experience, but I certainly understand packaged media, program media, creative media and how to exploit it. And I, you know, they flew me to New York. I met with the recruiter. I then met with the chairman of RCA Records and the president of RCA Records, and they made me an offer. So RCA was part of BMG. Uh, it was one of the label repertoires that was owned and operated by BMG Entertainment at that time. So this is probably end of 97. Um, I accepted the job and that started my career in music. So I moved back to New York City with, uh, at that time, my girlfriend, we weren't married, and so I spent the next 12 years, you know, in the music industry at RCA, BMG, and Sony Music. And then at your, during your time with Sony, um, what are some of your more memorable uh, artist experiences from that era? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, and it probably is a carryover from BMG and RCA because Sony acquired BMG. Right. Um, 
think probably around 03, 04. Um, but, you know, the carryover, you know, Dave Matthews Band was one of our first big artists that really helped resuscitate RCA, which was known as the Recording Cemetery of America. Legitimately. I hadn't heard um, that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I can give you a lot of old stories about, you know, the Victrola and the dog. Right. Um, but it was a dormant label. You know, the label was struggling. Um, and this is really the vision from you know, Bob Jameson, who was the chairman of RCA at the time. And when I joined the label, it was all about artist development. How could we help cultivate careers? for artists, um, which I think is a little bit of a missing uh, element today because uh, technology has basically um, given us a level of intermediacy, right? So everything is about like eliminating some of the middlemen, the disintermediation, everything is instantaneous. You, know, you create, you produce, you can do it yourself, you put it online. What artist development really was about was cultivating careers and trying to figure out how we can build their career smartly, efficiently, through all the mediums and all the channels that were available to us. Um, so that kind of led, we went on a run, uh, I can say that, and that kind of led into the evolution of Sony acquiring BMG, but Christina Aguilera, NSYNC, Justin Timberlake, we signed the Strokes, Kings of Leon, the Foo Fighters, I mean, some really large scale artists that were coming through the RCA portfolio, probably 98 to 2004. Right. Um, when I, when Sony was now fully immersed, I then moved over to the Sony offices at 550 Madison. Um, and I was, you know, executive vice president, general manager of, of a division, sort of a content management uh, product division. Let me just say that. But I also was looking at uh, what I'd like to call sort of void opportunities in the marketplace. And that kind of led me to thinking about creating a new label um, that I thought was being underserved in the market. And so I created Burgundy Records, right. which was funded by Sony Music, um, but it was an adult contemporary label. And so I looked at the marketplace of artists that had pretty significant careers, uh, good touring careers, good touring base. They've had some uh, moderate success, obviously, at radio, which was starting to dissipate. Um, but they knew that there was a, a loyal following of ambassadors and influencers and enthusiasts for their music and their brand. So that was the vision for the label. I went into Sony at the corporate level. Uh, I obtained the funding and I launched Burgundy Records with Aaron Neville. And I created the first record that I produced was a record uh, that was a tribute to Sam Cooke with Aaron Neville as the lead vocalist. So that led on a, a run of signing Shaka Khan and Donna Summer and uh, Aaron Neville, and then um, America. And then so we did all of these really interesting, eclectic, new releases with established artists with young up and coming creatives as A&R, as producers, as studio sessions. And it was, a, I loved the label. Um, and, and basically building an audience for them of which many of these artists thought it never existed before. You know, it's gone. They've, they're done with their major record label deals and they're just going to kind of fade into the sunset. And there's still a market for that, I believe. Which artist signing were you most proud of? I'd say Shaka Khan. She was, a, a, you know, again, when I look back at um, my New York upbringing around music, you know, I, I loved hip hop and I loved, um, for me, moving into sort of the 80s, uh, 80s and early 90s, some of these sort of, uh, you know, one hit wonders. But there was always this R&B funk sort of aspect of what I loved, you know, Parliament, Funkadelic, and um, 
you know, Shaka and Rufus. When I had the opportunity to sign Shaka, it was something we, we immediately went on uh, quickly. Uh, she was the second signing on the label. And it also was a record that we, we won two Grammys, um, best R&B album and best R&B single as a duet with Mary J. Blige. I'm very, very proud of that record. And I've become good friends with Shaka still to this day. That's fantastic. Uh, Joe, it really feels like uh, Burgundy Records was um, really a, a merger of your passion, what spoke to you, while also being astute about market timing and seeing an opportunity. That's correct. And, and I think those things to see, and you bring up a, a wonderful point, um, I think for any entrepreneur and any business executive, when there is this inflection and convergence between passion intellect and market opportunity. I, I think there, therein lies, not that anything is a playbook and a formula, because as you said, they're really, we're writing the formula certainly today in COVID-19 as we go along, but, but the, that, that convergence um, of creativity, of passion and intellect with appropriate market timing is, is an incredible recipe for success. Um, because without passion, I don't think I would have been as driven to create the label, to sign those artists. I think if I had I not had 10 years prior experience of building a brand of working with content, had I not had that opportunity of looking at the market in 2003, 2004, where touring was really starting to accelerate for what we call contemporary adult artists, those things all came together quickly. And I looked at that and says, okay, I think this is a formula for something we could be successful at. Nice, that's fantastic. Um, share with us about Momentum Worldwide. So uh, 2008, um, so now getting into the third chapter of the career, right? So first chapter was film, second chapter was music, and that went for a run of almost uh, 11 years. Mm. So I leave Sony in 2008, um, and I was recruited by Momentum uh, Worldwide, which is a division of IPG. It's a global brand management entertainment uh, experiential company owned by Interpublic Group of Companies. Been in the business for probably close to 25 years. Uh, a very large portfolio of clients and they had asked me to come in to run the global entertainment practices, which I did. The company was based in at that time in Soho. Um, so I was recruited, I accepted the job and it was another interesting chapter for me to be educated never necessarily working on the agency side of the business where I've always been on the client side of the business, okay. either creating product, marketing product, selling product, distributing product. What I found fascinating was that I now had, as opposed to having 12 artists on my label, I now had 12 clients and each client was respectively different. Yeah. They may have had some of the same needs. I need to sell more product. I need to launch a product. I need to get into this. I need to talk, you know, talk to this audience, but there were unique differences to it. And, you know, the first year or two years was really an onboarding for me to understand the agency process, which was more about structure and account planning and strategic planning. An incredible client who we've done some amazing things with, and that was America Express. I and mean, they were by far the largest client for Momentum Worldwide uh, globally. Um, it was a, a lion's share of the revenue in the business that was generated out of the New York office. And so I was probably, I'd say 50% of my time as an executive was helping build out the American Express sort of music and entertainment strategy and experiential processes. So those were all of the experiences and programs and content and development deals that we did across the entertainment spectrum. Fabulous time, very exciting and very educational for me. 
Great, excellent. Uh, and from there, you went to another startup, uh, Fruct. Yes, and it was a startup, literally. It um, and again, I, I love the way you you categorized earlier on about you know working for large scale clients but being entrepreneurial. I was asked and recruited um, about this opportunity for this very small music strategic experiential agency out of London. I knew nothing about them. I knew they had a funny name called Frucht, F-R-U-K-T, <laughs> um, which means fruit in Swedish, I found out. Right. Um, and then I, I met with the recruiter in LA, and then I met with the holding company in New York, which ironically happened to be IPG, Interpublic Group of Companies. So they acquired the agency out of London. They just acquired the agency, and then they flew me to London, and I spent maybe about a week in London meeting with the two co-founders, just understanding you know, their philosophy, their culture, the business. And then I was offered uh, a role as president of North America to help open up the North American presence in Los Angeles, which I accepted. Nice. And again, another fascinating, um, interesting time for a company that was very much featured around music, but music strategy, music data, music experience, all through the lens of how it, uh, it is developed for corporate clients. So okay. clients such as MasterCard and Cisco and Intel and Bank of America, Sprint, we had some very large enterprise clients who were really looking at music and entertainment as a key pillar of their strategic initiatives. Oh, fantastic. Well, and then uh, Jay-Z approaches you to, to launch an agency. Yeah, that, that was also serendipitous. Uh, I remember working at Frucht on a project um, that we were, we were doing some work for a project for Rihanna, who was signed to Jay-Z's Rock Nation, uh, his Rock Nation LLC. Um, and I remember one of the head of my, my business development team said, oh, you need to come in and meet Jay Brown, who at that time was the CEO of Rock Nation in Los Angeles. So a little backdrop, Rock Nation was um, under the auspices, independent, but associated with Live Nation. So right. they worked out of the Live Nation offices in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills right. um, and so I took a meeting with Jay Brown and he says, oh, I really love the work you guys are doing. And I says, oh, well, you know, what do you like about it? Well, we love the creative, we love the business, we love the designs, we love all of this. And I says, well, this is a full service agency at Frucht, we're part of IPG. And I says, you know, but we can probably do this for you. He's like, well, what do you mean? I says, let me share with you something. And then that kind of led me to create Nuco, which Nuco became the embodiment of volume four, which was the agency I created for Rock Nation, Jay-Z, Jay Brown, and Desiree Perez. Wonderful. So that time I flew to New York, they asked me to go to New York to present the business plan to Desiree Perez. I did. Um, I think I went back twice. And then eventually they gave it the green light in February of 2015. Fantastic. That's great. And uh, what, another interesting time, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interject, no, no, but, no, but I now have the opportunity to work for someone that I idolized, you know, in, in my early upbringings who really influenced, you know, a lot of my entertainment philosophical thinking about writing and lyrics and narrative and culture and movement. And, um, it was super exciting and very sexy. And, um, I remember having the conversation with my wife and then I recruited a few people that I thought would be, excited about the opportunity and everyone was was over the moon and it was uh, a glorious time to build something new with again one of i think one of the most creative um 
executives and who understands what it means to create culture. And this was really more of a cultural type of agency that really wasn't as much about creative, but how do we influence culture? How do we create it? How do we massage it? How do we work it through the lens of music and entertainment with talent? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I was curious about why volume four. And then I realized that uh, that's the date of Jay-Z's birthday. It, that is correct. Uh, and it's his favorite number. Um, and it was Jay who, who named the agency. And we went through an exercise of 100 different names and, you know, calibrations and story and narrative. And it was very simple. Oh, I, it wasn't simple. It was a long process. It took several <laughs> months. Um, and then one day Jay's office called and says, oh, he, he wants to call it volume four. I'm like, okay, he's the boss. Let's go. Yeah. 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 The number four uh, appears in a few different uh, parts it of does. the business empire, let's call it. <laughs> Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Uh, well, um, and the, the work you did with American Express and the experiential, you kind of um, uh, piggybacked off of that or resurrected it with the, the Justin Timberlake MasterCard experience and then uh, i saw that uh, gwen stefani wanted in mm -hmm. on that as well yeah mastercard I, I was a um an interesting client uh long-standing one at fruit i worked for them explicitly for well over three three and a half years um and it was sort of immersed into the culture of the company you know they they finally they was they were dipping their toe into music and entertainment and we looked at Amex as a playbook, right? There was a formula playbook. Amex had all of these incredible cardholder tiers, you know, the green, gold, platinum, Centurion card members. With MasterCard, it was more of like their banking institutions who really are their clients, albeit they have two and a half billion cardholders throughout the world and a global brand in over 200 countries. They never really had a strategic positioning around music. So one of the first things I did with the team we built a domestic and international music strategy, which then became our foundational plan to say, okay, what do we do with talent? How do we create experiences? How do we super serve several things within the priceless sort of brand imprimatur because they created priceless as a platform for the, for the brand. And that led to Justin Timberlake and creating priceless surprises. And then we used Gwen Stefani. And then we, we got more actively involved in creating short form content experiences that were all filmed and captured and really helped create this connection between the cardholder, the content, the talent, and the membership base. Very yeah. successful, I should yeah. say. Fantastic. That's really great. Very creative, Joe. Kudos on that. Thank you. I, it was a, a group effort. We, I had an incredible team working with us on both levels, both out of New York and LA. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, Joe, you spoke earlier about the importance of building culture. And I think it was in one of the, the marketing materials for volume four, where I saw this quote, the best work is rooted in true empathy. Share with us what that means for you. Um, yeah, I like to go back to that a lot. When we were writing the brand book for volume four, we were going through the beliefs, characteristics and attributes of the agency, which was new. It was a startup. So all I can do is collectively pull from context and experiences and influence. And at that time, I, you know, I, I know I come back to this, but I looked at certain artists and, and I'll, I'll, you know, there's Jay-Z and then there was the Run DMC and the Grandmaster Flesh, but there was also the Simon and Garfunkels and the Bob Dylans of the world who were just incredible lyricists and great songwriters. And I knew that if you were going to build something new, that, 
part of what creativity is about is the old with the new, that there is this sort of mixture of the two. One influences the other. But I always felt that culture was something that is so powerful as, you know, a, a set of common beliefs and principles. It builds community. Very nice. Well, on that theme of building community, um, you brought that to uh, full effect at Subnation. Yes, and, and another interesting, um, which, which happened to be a client. So, um, uh, you know, volume four became Royal Ventures, which is sort of my holding, branding, cultural, strategic agency. But Subnation was an interesting brand that when I was asked to work on behalf of the brand, it was a startup esports content media platform. So we started to see that there was an opportunity to create something as a culture and lifestyle product that could be a platform, it's content, it's a, it's a series of elements um, that were associated with the brand. And that really became the, the sort of evolution of Subnation. Yeah, no, there's certainly an evolution of that uh, segment. Uh, it's clear to see. Um, Joe, in your career, you have generated $2 billion in revenue across your various initiatives. Mm -hmm. It's an impressive, impressive track record. Um, I'm just curious, um, at this point in your career, the things that you're looking to do, like, like who's an ideal client for you? Mm. Well, um, that's a great question. Um, who, who's an ideal client? Well, on two levels, right? There's always the client that you look at and say, gosh, they built this brand that is, uh, it's important. It has utility. It has uh, meaning and it has purpose. And I think there's several that you can kind of rattle off. There's the Apples, the Nikes, um, you know, brands that actually mean something, create something, give something back to culture, to community, to businesses, to employees, to nations. Um, yes, I would love, and I have not, I have worked on a periphery, but I've never worked inside on the genesis of the type of campaigns that I would really like to work with. So Nike is certainly one of them on the large scale enterprise brand side. But the opposite end of that is I want to build and I want to find, you know, whether it's the next Casper or Warby Parker or, and again, I'm using those as sort of unicorns now that are now somewhat mature because they've been in business for the last three, four, five, seven years. But there's this next evolution of entrepreneurs, this next evolution of ideation around IP that I am probably most excited about. And while it's challenging and daunting and somewhat scary in the context of where we are today, I do believe that there is some inherent opportunity for entrepreneurs to start to think about, you know, meaning, purpose, and context, and taking those three things and somehow finding a solution that either elevates and eliminates a, a pain point or elevates an existing business that is more seamless, intuitive, digestible, and scalable. Um, but I'm probably more excited at least of working on sort of the entrepreneurial IP next generation side right now. That's fantastic. Joe, what is the definition of success for you? At this point in my career, your, our careers, when we think about who we are as individuals and less about executives, um, you know, I, I was thinking about this this morning. I was on a, um, you know, a hike with my dog and I'm like, boy, context is so important. Experience is important. But the, the human element of who we are as individuals, right, kind of helps shape a little bit. And those experiences help shape our sort of mindset. Um, 
And so I've kind of thought about the, what defines success and what defines happiness. Mm-hmm. And to me, I, to me, it's been sort of a successfully happy is what I want to start coining. I want to be successfully happy. It has nothing to do about economics. It has nothing to do about wealth. It has nothing to do about, you know, the, the house here and the house there. It has to do about the happiness intrinsically for you as an individual. And so, uh, you know, I'd like to consider myself at this point really understanding what it means to be successfully happy. Um, I haven't yet defined it explicitly, but I know it's there and I want to keep reaching for it. That's so well said. Very profound. That's going to stay with me for a while. <laughs> successfully happy. I love that. Thank Excellent. You. Well, Joe, thank you so much. This was a great treat. Really great to have you. My, my pleasure. Um, anytime, Asim, and thank you for the opportunity. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.